Welcome to episode 13 of Shellshocked. This week, we're talking about food fads, including an interview with sociologist Barry Glasner, author of The Gospel of Food, as well as a good news report about the hypocrisy of internet blogger Vanny Harry, also known as the Food Babe. So grab a knife and fork, tuck your napkin into your shirt really tight, and brace yourselves for shell shocked. Welcome to Shell Shock. So the topic this week is food fads, and I have um, a confession to make. Oh. I made gluten-free brownies this week. <laughs> <laughs> now, I didn't do it because I'm falling prey to this gluten-free craze. I did it because a friend of mine has, and I really like her. And I think she's a great person. And the last time I made dessert, when we had a little gathering, she couldn't eat it or wouldn't eat it because it had flour in it, which has gluten. So this time I made brownies without gluten. They were the worst brownies I've ever had. Oh, really? Oh, good. At least they weren't good. (laughs) They were not good. She said they were. She may have just been polite. Or maybe she thought, hey, these are better than what I usually eat that's got no gluten in it. But you know, the biggest problem is that the stuff won't stay together. Mm. Like, you have to add extra things to it. Because one of the things that gluten does, as I understand, is it's a binding agent. So Mm -hmm. it, it holds the food together, among other things. And they just fell apart. I mean, you want them to be crumbly and flaky and delicious and moist. They were not moist. They were crumbly, all right. They just kind of crumbled into piles that I kind of just moved together in little squares. So, you know, it wasn't a huge disaster. They still tasted like chocolate and sugar, which is great. But for the most part, I feel a little guilty over that. So, I'm going to allow Marilyn to take the lead on this conversation, since clearly I don't deserve to. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be so hard on yourself, Sheldon. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, what did you find when you looked into all this stuff about food fads? Well, um, I learned that fat is good for you, Um, artificial sweetener is bad, and cricket flour is a real thing, being sold as a healthy source of protein. Tell me you made that up. Nope. Nope. Uh, You know, and now they're turning to bugs, because bugs are abundant, (laughs) and they are a cheap source of protein. Um, But of course, you know... um, I think what drives a lot of these fads, of you know, is um, food companies and grocers. Um, they count on us flitting from one eating habit to another, mm-hmm. and they want to profit from that. Um, you know, unfortunately, also um, people don't like uh, to hear uh, the 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 truth. You know, they want mm-hmm. the quick uh, quick fix for a lot of things, right. and you know the. The thing about nutrition is that to stay healthy, um, for the most part, it all has to do with eating well most of the time, getting enough sleep, and exercising. Yeah. Um, but 
people don't want to do the hard work, you know, and so they start um, hearing about these fads, you know, the paleo diet or, you know, eggs are bad for us, eggs are good for us, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, and so I did find out that uh, food fads follow a certain path. So um, the first path is discovery. And that is when some influential group, like a creative chef or a small business, um, brings out a new food fad. And um, I'll come back to this because uh, I want to talk to you about Bulletproof Coffee, if you haven't heard of that one. I have not. Uh, yeah. So um, it, it sounds very different than what it is. You know, but, uh, you hear Bulletproof Coffee, and to me it sounds like, you know, I really caffeinated form or something that's going to really rev you up. Yeah. But that's not what it is at all. But I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. So discovery is the first um, trajectory. And then we have emerging. Um, and that's when uh, the fad goes to the foodies of the world. So it's not to the general public yet. Um, but it, it it's getting there. Um, and think about this as uh, fancy high quality butter. Um, they're now touting grass fed cows or flavored butters. Um, I don't know if you've heard of them, if you consider yourself a foodie. No. But, okay. Um, so then after that, it takes hold on a wider audience and you find new uses for uh, certain foods. Ah. Like the big rage right now is Brussels sprouts and, you know, all different ways of uh, cooking. So we're off of kale. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good to know. Yes. Good to know. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and we're getting on this next train here. Okay. Um, and then, um, then it goes mainstream. And then it starts being talked about in, on recipe sites. Or, um, uh, you know, if you go to like Betty Crocker, you know, they start putting it out there. Um, and, you know, one of the most common ones right now that you were, like you were talking about, gluten-free foods. Mm -hmm. You know, they are now widely um, available, but you still sort of have like high-end versions um, coming around, which reminds me, I'm going to go off topic a little bit here, but um, they were just selling, there was an article um, that Whole Foods was selling asparagus water for $6. And what it is, is a bottle of water with three uh, three uh, sticks of asparagus, or three whatever of asparagus. They don't grind it up and put it in the water. They just stick them in there? Yes. For six bucks? Yes. Oh, my God. So something that's free, water, yeah. with something that's almost free, which asparagus. is asparagus. You could probably get a clump of it for a couple of bucks. Yeah. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Um, yeah. So uh, they, uh, they actually uh, had to, um, they took it off the shelves because so many people complained. <laughs> so they couldn't get away with that one. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> that's great. They tried. Um, but, uh, you know, who's the genius behind that? Hey, let's put, you know, these people are, you know, so into Whole Foods. Let's put a whole thing of asparagus <laughs> in water. They'll never buy it, one of and, and jack up the price. I remember some guy, uh, some stand-up comic, I wish I could remember who it was because it was hilarious and so true. He said, um, have you noticed all this bottled water everywhere now? As if that's better for you? And he said, 
you know, it all started with Avion, right? Which is this French company. And I like to imagine this French guy sitting back in a boardroom and they're trying to figure out what their next product is going to be. And he says, the Americans, they are so stupid we could sell them water. And someone says, oh, please, even they're not that dumb. Just wait. <laughs> it worked so well, you know? Very well. Yep. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, all right. So back to um, tracking food fads. So uh, we have mainstream and then we have uh, what's called arrived. And this is when now you are um, reaching a mass audience. It's on fast food menus. It's in most grocery stores. Mm. Um and these are things like uh, uh, free-range eggs, um, organic uh, foods, uh, sriracha sauce, which I love, by the way. Um, and finally, then, uh, uh, like all fads, they move on. And uh, so it's still familiar to a larger audience, but it's, it's no longer growing like it was before. I see. And uh, an example of this would be like pomegranates. You know, they were the big antioxidant superstar. Yeah. And now, you know, people realize, well, they can get that from blueberries. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they don't need to go through that, uh, the effort of, you know, chopping the pomegranate, taking out the little seeds or all that kind of stuff. So So. there's also a lot of science coming out showing evidence that the antioxidant thing was much ado about nothing anyway. Exactly. That was also a fad. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, there. if you look at a lot of these fads, they seem to have a kernel of truth in them, and then they just blow them out of proportion. And then when people actually do the research on it, um, it, it, it doesn't hold up a lot of times. Right. So, so let me tell you about Bulletproof Coffee. Please do, because I love my uh, coffee. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you'll like it like this, oh. but anyway, this is, um, it was started by Silicon Valley investor, entrepreneur, Dave Asprey. Well, if he's a Silicon Valley investor, I'm going to go to him for all of my nutritional questions. <laughs> yes. And he was a big fat guy, he says, and um, he turned his obsessive mind to become a biohacker because hacking it's a fat. Wow. Everything's a fat. That's clever. Uh, yeah. And so one of the key components to his reinvention is his buttery coffee breakfast, which came to him in inspiration after he had some traditional yak butter tea in Tibet. Uh, uh-huh. Tell me they don't put so, butter in it. Oh, and that's not all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, so um, what Bulletproof Coffee is, it's two tablespoons, not like a teaspoon, two tablespoons of butter, preferably grain-free, you know, the new fad, Uh and oil, Um, MCT oil to be exact. What is MCT oil? Well, from what I found is most oils are LCTs, they're long chain triglycerides. Okay. And MCTs are mid uh uh mid chain triglycerides. Okay, so not the short, not the long, the Goldilocks area in the middle. A- exactly. Okay. Um and so they are uh 
used by your body, supposedly, like carbohydrates instead of fats. You know, um, so they're used m- much more quickly because your bro- body doesn't have to break, uh, break them down mm. or, or can break them down more quickly, okay. you know, and it doesn't take so long. So um, the idea is, is you eat this for breakfast, Okay, so you don't eat breakfast, you just eat this. And of course, um, you have to buy all of this stuff from his uh, website. Of course. Okay, Um, because you can't just use any coffee. No. You have to use his special blend um, because his uh, coffee is much better than anything else sold out there. Okay. Um, and you are, so you buy his coffee, which he says they've removed, um, all the molds that are in, in usual coffees, which is not true by the way. (laughs) Um, uh, you know, like every other coffee producer removes the molds also. Um, and so there usually isn't anything different from, you know, his coffee than their coffee. Um, but, uh, you, by the time you've drank your coffee with butter and oil, you have drank 140% of your saturated fat in one go. Whoa. Yeah. And what it is supposed to do is it's supposed to, um, the butter is supposed to take away all the bitterness of coffee. It's supposed to, um, uh, make you full and uh, help you lose weight and, in addition, clear your mind. Now we're into my area. (laughs) (laughs) So take that, Mrs. Olson, with your Folgers (laughs) coffee with no butter in it. Yeah, and I mean, obviously... You know, they say, I haven't tried, you know, this. It sounds disgusting. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, I do like cream in my coffee. And what's butter but churned cream, you know. True. So, um, but not two tablespoons worth, you know. Yeah. Um, so... This is so it's it's being sold. I actually have haven't been to a place where I've I've seen it sell. Um, so I don't know if you can go out to like a Starbucks or you know a, a Blue Bottle and get this uh, coffee. I don't know if he's pat- patented or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, it's the new fad here in San Francisco, and of course, you know, because it started in Silicon Valley. Well, it'll be interesting to see if it follows that little chain of acceptance that you talked about earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if suddenly we go to our local Starbucks and hear people saying, yes, I'll have a, a, a tall bullet coffee, is it called? <laughs> Bulletproof <laughs> yeah. coffee. Uh, yeah. And a mocha macchiate or whatever the hell they yeah. sell there. <laughs> I can't keep yeah. track. I stand in line and say, after 15 people and their fancy coffees, I'll have a coffee. Yeah. I've stood there for 25 minutes. I'll have a coffee. So I just said <laughs> hell with it and got myself a Keurig for my office because I can't stand it anymore. But I, I won't be ordering that. No, that sounds absolutely disgusting and doesn't sound all that healthy either. No. And, and it's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not healthy. It's expensive. And, you know, it what it what he says is it makes you a fat burning machine. <laughs> um, and he he cites a couple studies um which were done on rats and mice, by the way. Mm-hmm. And some of them are like 40 years old. So like you, we just talked about, a lot of um, 
the, these fad diets, once they do research on them, we find out new information. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, basically he has a little bit of confirmation bias, you know. Just a tad. Uh, yeah. Since so, he's selling uh, all these products and he's a Silicon Valley investor, et cetera, it should make an eyebrow raise. Exactly. Wow. And, um, you know, of course, if you are going to probably, if you eat three meals a day and you replace one yeah. <laughs> with, you know, uh, yes, of course you might lose weight. Um, but I did read a couple people who kind of uh, tried it as an experiment and, you know, they didn't eat uh, anything um, and ate uh, lunch four hours later because he says that's about how long it'll keep you satisfied. Mm. And they were, they, they shouted BS. They were like, no, we, we were starving. <laughs> <laughs> Two tablespoons of butter did not suffice. Yeah, because our body likes solid <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's just so, so much food science out there to choose from. Sometimes oh, yeah. it's it's really difficult to know who you should go to and, you know, whom you should stay away from. I mean, it's it's easy for those of us, like you and I work in higher education. So we have access to, daily access mm -hmm. to good information and more than that, how to discern good from bad information. We've been trained in that. That's kind of in our minds always. But if you think of the average American, they don't have that background or reinforcement, and they simply don't have the time to sort through all of this. So they get it from the Internet. They get it from Oprah Winfrey. They get it from, you know, friends who tell them about the latest paleo diet or whatever. And mm -hmm. I'm not so quick to judge them. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you have somebody who says they're an expert, you know, like Oz, you know, people say, oh, he's a doctor. He, you know. And he is. He should know. He is, yeah. And uh, then you take whatever he says, you know, and we are told, you, you know, I tell my students all the time, you can't know everything about everything. So we do have to trust experts sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's where the problem comes in is, you know, sometimes we're not too, too critical. Uh, we don't think critically about who these experts are. Right. Who is an expert in that area and how can we believe the evidence that they give us? Those are the exactly. two most important questions. Yeah. And later on, um, I'll be talking about who you shouldn't um, be taking these uh, fad diet information from, and that's somebody known as the food babe. I wanted to bring up that one of the uh, quotes that I found is, you know, the way that, that they tout a lot of fad food stuff is that our modern diet um, is the root of all degenerative diseases such as obesity, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, depression, and infertility. Oh, boy. And so, you know, those are all scary-sounding stuff, and yeah. people want to avoid them. And, you know, so they're like, oh, if I, you know, if I eat this way, I won't get those things. And, you know, that's very unfortunate because they don't understand all the, or, or how these diseases really come about. And so they think, yeah, uh, you know, eating healthy can can make you live longer and stuff like that. But, um, you know, there there has always been heart disease, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, that these Parkinson's and Alzheimer's aren't new stuff or cancer, you know, they... they the idea that we've brought modern, that modern world has brought cancers, you know, kind of ridiculous. Yeah. And it's, again, it's a complex 
issue, so it's going to have a complex answer. Exactly, not an easy fix. Right. One thing like diet is not going to be the quick fix for these kinds of things. Yes, it may be playing a role, Mm -hmm. and correcting some of your diet might help, but it's not going to solve all these world problems. Ridiculous. Yeah. So, unfortunately, though, um, right now... um, the food sales, you know, overall food sales are pretty stable, except for, do you want to guess some of the uh, ones, the food sales that have risen in the uh, last year? Tell me. Gluten-free, uh-huh. organic, and GMO-free. Wow. Yeah. So, um, I think like now they're even like putting stuff on, you know, uh, GMOs. I heard read something like GMOs are being put on like water or some, you know something ridiculous. Like, yeah, there's no you know, GMOs yeah, in yeah, this exactly. water. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. And it's probably organic too. Yeah. Well, uh, the good news, I guess, there is that for people who actually do have celiac disease, mm-hmm. who can't eat gluten, there's just a cornucopia of options for them now that didn't exist five or ten years ago. I know. Yeah. They are really happy. Yeah. Uh, and and they just happen to be, what, 1% one of percent. the population? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Wow. All right. Well, let's get to that interview. All right. On the line with me now is Barry Glasner. He is the president of Lewis and Clark College and was formerly professor of sociology and executive vice provost at the University of Southern California, where he was honored in 2002 with its highest research award. He has received a Phi Kappa Phi Faculty Recognition Award, a visiting fellowship at Oxford University, and best book designation from the Los Angeles Times Book Review, among other honors. His research specialties include cultural sociology, qualitative research methods, and media studies. Mr. Glasner has published numerous scholarly articles in professional journals and has authored or co-authored nine books, including one of my favorites, The Culture of Fear, as well as the book we'll be discussing today, The Gospel of Food, in which he argues that much of what Americans read and hear about food is inaccurate and unhelpful. Barry Glasner, welcome to Shellshock. Thanks for inviting me. So like many, many other people, I read your book, The Culture of Fear, and after being educated and frankly somewhat horrified by its content, I was surprised when I saw that your next book was called The Gospel of Food, a book with perhaps the best subtitle ever written, Everything You Think You Know About Food is Wrong. So maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about why you chose food as your next investigative subject. In the Culture Fear, I wrote about a whole variety of uh, topics that Americans are afraid of, that they don't need to be afraid of, uh, or that they're very confused about, ranging from drugs and crime to minorities and teen moms and mutant microbes and so forth. And when I got to the end of that book, uh, and it was coming out, I realized I had missed one of the biggest areas where Americans are uh, fearful, extremely fearful about almost everything that we eat one way or another and very, very much uh, mixed up. So that's really, I see it as kind of the culture of fear part two in a way with obviously a uh, focus entirely on food and uh, 
I guess, I guess the best way I can really illustrate this uh, is with one of my favorite studies that I mention in the book and something that I do when I give talks um, around the country. Um, and basically what I do is I ask a question that goes like this. If, if you were alone on a desert island for a year and you could have all the water that you needed but only one other food, uh, which one would you select? And then I give a list uh, asking the audience which one of these foods would be best for your health. So the list goes like this, corn, alfalfa sprouts, hot dogs, spinach, peaches, bananas, or milk chocolate. And I kind of have people raise their hands, so people listening now can uh, – can can do this mentally. They can vote on this. All right. So you have all the water you can drink, and you can have one other food. Which which one? So here's the list again. Which one would be best for your health? Corn, alfalfa sprouts, hot dogs, spinach, peaches, bananas, or milk chocolate? Now this was done in uh, a big survey uh, by these researchers, uh, and uh, only one in ten people chose hot dogs or milk chocolate, though those are the two foods on the list that come closest to providing you with a complete diet because of the fats and the other nutrients they contain. Uh, you know, if you were left alone on this island with the things we think of as great healthy foods like alfalfa sprouts and spinach, you would die. Um, you're not going to do too well anyway on the hot dogs and milk chocolate, but you have a much better chance. So my point in that, and much of the rest of the book, is that we have this notion uh, you know, of, of what's, what's good and bad and so forth. Um, and and um, you know, if, we, if we were to eat milk chocolate and hot dogs every day in a normal situation, we'd be crazy and we'd be sick right? Um, uh, and very foolish. But everything depends on the situation you're in, and our confusions about food go very, very deep. And one of the first things that you do in your book is address the way that Americans approach food, pointing out that we seem to be obsessed with finding the good foods and the bad foods, and something that you refer to as the gospel of naught. So can you tell us a little bit about this emotional and somewhat judgmental way that we eat, and what does the research show about how it affects us? Yeah, well, the good news, to, to turn to that early on in our conversation, the good news about this food-obsessed age is that there's a lot of quality and variety in foods that have become available um, and the delight that many Americans take in exploring new tastes and so forth. Uh, I looked, uh, I'm not a historian, I'm a sociologist, but I looked a lot at, uh, at uh, history uh, and the work that historians have done and others uh, on the American diet. And it's a fairly recent phenomenon. Um, but even as that's going on, even as many of us uh, really embrace the pleasures of a diverse diet, many, many others have fallen under the sway of killjoys uh, who preach what you just referred to, what I call the gospel of naught. That's N-A-U-G-H-T. Uh, and that's the view that the worth of a food lies primarily not in what it has, and what it lacks, right? So depending on which year, sometimes which month you're looking at, the less sugar, the less salt, the less fat, the less, less calories, 
the less carbs, the less preservatives, the less additives. You know, you can go on and on. The less of whatever it is this year, this week, the better the food. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I'm the only one who would say, if you think about this for a minute, it is, to be generous, a misguided notion, right? Yes. So, you know, we... At, while it's true that, that consuming too much of anything is going to be unhealthy, um, and it's also true, I should stress, that people with certain health problems uh, are going to need to avoid certain foods. Right. right? Um, but with that said, we would all do really well uh, to maintain a healthy skepticism about uh, the assumed or alleged sanctity or safety of one food or one diet over another. Um, and especially, I think, uh, we should be really skeptical about people who make a vocation out of taking the pleasure out of eating, and there, there are a lot of those around. Uh, one thing I point out in the book that goes right to your question is, you know, I looked at the official dietary guidelines that are issued by governments uh, throughout Europe, other parts of the world, and I found something I, that I thought was significant, right? Uh, the word enjoy enjoy appears in many of them. Uh, a country I was just in <laughs> recently, Norway, comes right out and declares food and health, food and joy equal health. Food and joy equal health. Now, the U.S. dietary guidelines say nothing about enjoyment. Mm. You know, they're faithful to our Puritan roots. <laughs> <Right? Yeah. laughs> um, and I, you know, I just think that we're way past due uh, to correct that omission and to renounce the doctrine of naught. And um, you know, I, I don't, I don't say this, you know, just kind of broadly or, or based on some sort of vague feeling. Um, but I think there's really good research out there to support this, um, which again, you know, really goes to the heart of your question. And that's research that shows that people get more out of a meal. And that's not just emotionally, but physiologically when the food is a pleasure to eat. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite studies, again, is, was one that was done of women from different countries. Uh, they fed, uh, fed them foods that they liked, foods that they disliked, you know, ones they were familiar with, unfamiliar with. And then the scientists measured how much iron the women absorbed. What they found was that the women absorb more iron when they were eating foods that they enjoyed. Wow. So, you know, um, there's just a lot of reasons to, to kind of go in this direction. You know, another simple notion is that fast food companies like McDonald's are the biggest culprits in our health and obesity epidemic and the decline of Americans' health over the last few years. What does the research show about the idea that McDonald's is supersizing us to death? Yeah, well, let me, let me let me first, in answering that question, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not suggesting that a person's diet can't harm their health. Right. Can, of course. I'm also obviously not someone who says that, you know, eating the greasiest items on McDonald's menu day in and day out is a good thing or that you won't end up ill. I must say I don't think that we needed Morgan Spurlock in his movie Supersize Me to tell us that, but anyway. That's just a footnote. Um, I find much more interesting than that, the flip side of the equation, okay, that doesn't get a whole lot of attention. So we could ask, would someone who eats an average American diet, right, 
would they live longer if they gave up their favorite foods and they followed the, the dictates of the gospel of not what we were just discussing? And if you read, you know, a lot of these these people who are advocating what healthy eating is, whether in newspapers or books or elsewhere, you would certainly think that that's the case. And we wouldn't have time in this interview to go through it. This is going to be maybe the only place I say you really got to read the book to get this get this stuff. But I go in great detail. I talked to a lot of people and did a lot a lot of research here, and I can tell you that even scientists who dictate that approach, the kind of gospel and not approach, they cannot actually tell you how much difference their prescribed diet is going to make. Mm. And the more honest among them, when they're pressed, this isn't, isn't universal, but pretty much to the point, they'll admit that, in fact, it has relatively little effect um, and that the results of the studies are not nearly as clear or sophisticated as they're portrayed to be. Now, that's not to say they have no value, of course, right? Um, but it is to say that you know, this demonizing uh, of, of one kind of food or one, one type of food or another um, is really problematic. And you asked specifically, you know, about McDonald's and fast foods. Well, you know, when, when people portray anything that McDonald's and, and and others do is, is, you know, satanic, regardless of how well-received they are. Um, and by the way, specifically by the people that, that these critics claim they want to protect, mm. um, often in a kind of paternalistic way, I would say. But when they do that, they're forgetting that there's a lot more going on here. And again, it doesn't offset the bad stuff, but to make it invisible or ignore it is just... Um, you know, not not very wise or intelligent. So, you know, more than a few teenagers have been able, um, you know, to buy their first car, put away money for college and so forth on money that they earned at fast food chains, which isn't to say that their labor practices are perfect, but it's important to know about that, right? And something that I really make a big point about, these places um, offer what a lot of their critics so far, haven't been able to suggest uh, an alternative to, or they can sometimes suggest it, but they don't provide it. Um, and that's a clean, safe place um, with reliably safe food. You know, it makes big news when there's an outbreak in these places because it's incredibly rare, especially at the at the big chains like McDonald's. Um, and they offer this for relatively low prices, right? Um, you know, at the bigger ones, the McDonald's, for example, you also get get the whole meal, you know, with a with seesaws and slides, you know, <laughs> and climbing gyms for the children, um, which, you know, we can make fun of and see as a marketing thing. But for thousands and thousands of families who don't have access uh, to safe and well-equipped playgrounds, um, this is no minor bonus. So, you know, my point is, again, um, it's not that McDonald's is superior or any other kind of food um, is in that regard, but there are going to be pros and cons and pluses and minuses, and, and we need to take those into account in how we think about these things. 
I also love the fact that you challenge this idea that you are what you eat. I've heard that since childhood. Now, we haven't met, but I'm six, two and a half, 155 pounds. I'm a thin guy. When I'm in a crowd of people, if they're vegetarians, vegans, health food, nuts, or what have you, they often seem to be talking directly to me as if I'm one of them. If they knew what I ate on a daily basis, they would not do that. So obviously, there's something else going on here. We can't be just what we eat. I love your example. I might I might be mentioning you when I talk about this, you know, because those because you know there's just this kind of assumption, and and the reverse, of course, right? If if someone is heavier, you know, you know the same thing. But it, listen, the experiment I love about this is one that that was done at Arizona State University that really really goes to this old adage, you are what you eat. And, and this was an experiment where the psychologist showed students a set of pictures, a set of photographs of people their age. And they told some of the students uh, that the people in the photos were eating good foods, like fruits and wheat bread and chicken. And then other students in, in this experiment were told that the people in the pictures uh, ate bad foods like donuts and hamburgers and french fries and fudge sundaes. Truth is, the students were all shown identical photographs. And yet, they rated the people in the photographs as less attractive, less likable, and less moral uh. if they had been told that they ate so-called bad foods. Okay? Uh, you know, um, the kinds of assumptions we make and biases we make based on what someone eats, how heavy or light they are, um, are really biases. But they're biases that we can, you know, that you not only can you get away with, but you can feel virtuous about um, in the society. And I think that that's, to say the least, unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. um, but it is also ungrounded. You know, is the other thing. Um, and I know you work on a college campus. I do. For college students, for high school students, many others too, but particularly in, you know in these groups, these kinds of biases can be very damaging. Um, you know, to, to how to a person's self-image, you know, to to how they um, go about uh, their lives and how they feel about themselves. So it's it's not trivial. It really matters. Well, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your book and also talking to you. We'll have links to your books and other information in the show notes. But is there anything you want to add about what you're working on now or how people can learn more about you and your work? Yeah, the easiest way is just to go uh, to my website, which is my name, barryglassner.com. Uh, you can also go to cultureoffear.com if that's easier to remember. And uh, you'll find all sorts of things, and um, you'll find the links uh to, uh, to purchase uh, either of these books. So um, that, that, I think that's the easiest way. That's what I'd recommend. Great. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Okay. Thanks for inviting me. Sir. The Science Report. Some of you may be familiar with a meme that's been making the rounds lately entitled, 
What happens one hour after drinking a can of Coke? In it, the reader is treated to an image of a can of Coca-Cola and a list of seven paragraphs of information that include biological, chemical, and medical details that begin with the first 10 minutes after drinking the can of cola, up to and including beyond the 60-minute mark. This alarming infographic has been spread far and wide across social media and has been reposted hundreds of times on various websites, each repeating the claims of alarmingly dangerous health effects from simply drinking a can of Coke. In tracing its source, I soon ran across a website called The Renegade Pharmacist, where the graphic originated. This site serves as a blog for a former UK pharmacist named Niraj Naik, who now sells a variety of alternative health products online, including via videos claiming that bovine colostrum boosts immunity and cured his ulcerative colitis without the use of other medications. It didn't escape my attention that his website also boasts articles such as Seven Healthy Reasons to Begin Juicing Right Now and Manage Your Anger with Holistic Treatment. Interestingly, the site also boasts a disclaimer that states, This website is for information and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended to cure, prevent, or treat any disease. A common refrain from those taking advantage of the same sorts of legal loopholes we see from medical charlatans of all stripes. Nike posted his image and article in May of 2015, but reports indicate that it began to get traction only after it was reposted by The Truth Theory, a site that mixes articles by Naige with others about conspiracy theories, the cancer-fighting properties of ginger root, and how to organize your friends into Buddhist categories. Although Nike's image provides no research references or attempts to back up its statements, a bit of online sleuthing revealed that it was based upon an online post by Wade Meredith at Blistree.com, a website that mixes more New Age health advice with a permanent page devoted to spiritual advisor and alternative medicine advocate Deepak Chopra called the Chopra Well. Given its questionable provenance, it's understandable that many real scientists and health professionals have gone on the defensive in an attempt to correct what they see as glaring errors in its claims. Here are a few details from the graphic, along with some more rational, scientific explanations of the claims being made. First 10 minutes. 10 teaspoons of sugar hit your system. 100% of your recommended daily intake. You don't immediately vomit from the overwhelming sweetness because phosphoric acid cuts the flavor, allowing you to keep it down. A keen observer will note that the wording here seems carefully constructed for maximum alarmist impact. Phrases like hit your system and use of the graphic word vomit make for an unnecessarily vivid description and the part about phosphoric acid preventing regurgitation also smacks a bit of conspiracy theory, seemingly suggesting that the manufacturer knows your body will reject all this sugar and takes the necessary steps to ensure that the poison stays in your system. In a recent interview with BuzzFeed, Dr. Kimber Stanhope, Associate Research Nutritional Biologist for the University of California Davis, said, This statement is not true. 
By far, the majority of people have no trouble consuming 10 teaspoons of sugar-sweetened beverage. We've studied hundreds of participants in our studies who consumed beverages that contained more than 10 teaspoons of sugar, but no phosphoric acid. Not one ever vomited due to the sweetness, and I don't remember any of them ever reporting that they felt nauseated. 20 minutes. Your blood sugar spikes, causing an insulin burst. Your liver responds to this by turning any sugar it can get its hands on into fat. There's plenty of that at this particular moment. Well, no argument here about the sugar content. Surveys show that Americans consume a lot of sugar. According to the USDA, the average American consumes between 130 and 150 pounds of refined sugar every year. As much as one-third of that comes from sodas of various types, including the top-selling brand Coca-Cola. But the insulin burst isn't the part we should be alarmed about. Insulin is a hormone our bodies produce so that the sugar can be utilized by our cells as energy. It has no harmful health effects, and in healthy people, isn't generally involved in weight gain. Simple solutions such as cutting sodas out of our daily diet isn't enough to address the obesity epidemic. To maintain a healthy weight, people need to balance their total caloric intake with their metabolic rate through diet and exercise. And it's that last part that gets left out of quick fixes like vilifying Coca-Cola. 45 minutes. Your body ups your dopamine production, stimulating the pleasure centers of your brain. This is physically the same way heroin works, by the way. Dr. Michael Taffy, an associate professor for the Committee on the Neurobiology of Addictive Disorders at the Scripps Research Institute, says, Everything about drugs needs to be understood in terms of dose and tolerance. This sensationalistic description makes it sound more dramatic than is the experience for the average Coke drinker. It's way overblown, as such things tend to be. 60 minutes. The caffeine's diuretic properties come into play. It makes you have to pee. It is now assured that you'll evacuate the bonded calcium, magnesium, and zinc that was headed to your bones, as well as sodium, electrolyte, and water. Here again, we have a bit of science with a good dollop of hyperbole. The belief that caffeine is a strong diuretic is based upon a single study done in 1928. Since then, researchers have shown that caffeine is an extremely weak diuretic at best. And perhaps more importantly, those who drink coffee and other types of caffeine regularly build up a tolerance within a matter of weeks or months, meaning that any effect on urine production quickly dissipates. A recent study at the University of Birmingham in England of moderate coffee drinkers found that four cups of coffee each day hydrated just as well as the equivalent amount of water. A 12-ounce can of Coke contains 34 milligrams of caffeine, the equivalent of just 33% of a standard drip cup of coffee. So the claim that the diuretic effect of caffeine and Coke is robbing consumers of large amounts of crucial nutrients is simply unsupported by the research. The attractiveness of simple answers whether it be a graphic warning of the dangers of Coke, or a documentary claiming that Americans are obese because of their dependence on McDonald's, is understandable. 
We would all prefer to live in a world where complex problems such as our general health and longevity had simple answers. Unfortunately, that's not the world we live in, and most complex problems have solutions that involve a commitment to a general course of action we won't like, even if it is for our own good. Being told that cutting this or that product out of our diets will make us healthy is understandably more attractive than being told maintain a healthy diet, an exercise program, and avoid overindulging in unhealthy foods and activities that you enjoy. But the bright side of this is that we've been provided with all of this scientific information that previous generations simply didn't have. So the choice is ours to follow the advice that comes to us from good science or to deal with the consequences if we choose to ignore it. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. This is Marilyn, and this is the good news. This week's story involves the takedown by science of a purveyor, in my opinion, of bunk. The story was originally covered in the Skeptical Inquirer. Vanny Harry, now better known as the Food Babe, has built quite a following for herself since her 2011 debut, with nearly 1 million followers on Facebook and a book release in February of 2015. The following background information about her is from her website. For most of her life, she ate anything she wanted. She was a candy addict, drank soda, never ate green vegetables, frequented fast food restaurants, and ate an abundance of processed food. Her typical American diet landed her where that diet typically does, in a hospital. It was then in the hospital bed more than 10 years ago that she decided to make her health a number one priority. She used her newfound inspiration for living a healthy life to drive her energy into investigating what is really found in our food, how it is grown, and what chemicals are used in its production. She admits that she didn't go to nutrition school to learn this. She had to teach herself everything, spending thousands of hours researching and talking to experts. She's another Google PhD grad. As she began to learn more, she was no longer duped by big business marketing tactics, confused by lengthy food labels, and it became easier for her to live in this overprocessed world. Most importantly, the more she learned and the more lessons she put into action, the better she felt and wanted to tell everyone about it. Her hope for you is that by assimilating the information you learn on foodbabe.com, into your own life, you can experience a richer sense of health and well-being than you ever imagined possible. She started her blog in April of 2011 to share her healthy lifestyle with friends and family. Over the last four years, foodbabe.com has become a powerful vehicle for change due to the dedication of those that go there to read and share the information they learn. Her hope is that through reading the investigations and information she posts on foodbabe.com, you can expect to learn her truth about harmful ingredients and processed foods and how to avoid the stuff the food industry is trying to hide. Hey, that reminds me of Kevin Trudeau. Over the past four years, her friends, family members, and the Food Babe Army, as they call themselves, has been urged to vote with their dollars like never before. 
She encourages her followers to vote with their dollars by choosing to buy products that are sustainably produced to actively shape the marketplace. Companies have no choice but to respond to them and improve the quality of their products. She believes that she has made some big changes thus far. Well, Harry's pseudoscience has been widely debunked by qualified scientists, but a more sobering fact seems to have escaped everyone's attention. One of America's most notorious bloggers is earning sales commissions from products that contain the very same ingredients she says are dangerous. Ironically, from a web activist who seems to do most of her research via Google, the evidence is only a few mouse clicks away. In her article, Throw This Out of Your Bathroom Cabinet Immediately, Harry links aluminum and modern deodorants to horrific diseases such as breast cancer and Alzheimer's. But in that same piece, she recommends and earns an Amazon.com affiliate commission from naturally fresh deodorant, which contains ammonium alum and potassium alum. It's perplexing that Harriet didn't take one additional step and look up these two compounds while writing her blog. She would have found they're better known as ammonium aluminium disulfate dodecahydrate, and I apologize if I don't pronounce that correctly, and aluminium potassium sulfate. Yes, after warning about the dangers of aluminium in deodorants, Miss Harry earns a commission on a deodorant that contains aluminium. Is, is this just a one-off mistake, poor research, or the use of scare tactics to sell competing products? You be the judge. In The Ingredients in Sunscreen Destroying Your Health, Food Babe warns that applying vitamin A retinol palmitate to your skin and going out in the sun puts one in danger of skin cancer. Yet, she brings in affiliate dollars on skincare products that contain vitamin A, such as Tarte Blush. Affiliate links on foodbabe.com lead the buyer to web pages that proudly proclaim retinal palmitate among the ingredients. The vitamin A skin cancer scare has already been debunked by experts, but that's beside the point. Harry makes the claim that vitamin A in skincare products is dangerous, yet she's profiting from the sales of such a product. On that note, what does Food Babe recommend in a sunscreen? According to her, a must-have ingredient is titanium dioxide, and she provides a list of acceptable titanium dioxide-laden lotions. This is hypocritical. One of the Babe's most vocal and infamous campaigns has been against Starbucks for their use of a particular caramel coloring in spiced pumpkin lattes. According to Harry, the coloring contains 4-methylamidazole, 4 classified as a Group 2B carcinogen by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Do you know what else is listed as a Group 2B carcinogen? Yep, titanium dioxide, her gotta-have sunscreen ingredient. For perspective on the IRC list are coffee, pickled vegetables, talc body powder, and the professions of carpentry and firefighting. But relative safety of the additives aside, why is it okay to use scare tactics to frighten consumers away from a product, then turn around and earn commissions on others in the same group? 
Food Babe identifies the IARC as the source for her formal cancer claim. So how did she miss the titanium dioxide? It's on the same list. Does the fact that she's helping sell products that contain titanium dioxide have any bearing on her research? Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web in 1989 as a research tool, and it can be powerful when used correctly. I'm not sure he imagined how badly it could be abused by investigators such as Fanny Harry, who seemed to give up the chase after a single mouse click. In Be a Drugstore Beauty Dropout, she declares women must avoid beauty products with ingredients ending in dash siloxane because they're supposed endocrine disruptors. Later, in an article for Well and Good magazine, she gushes about Tarte Cosmetics, Lights, Camera, Lashes, Mascara. Not coincidentally, she earns a sales commission on this mascara. One more click of the mouse would have told her that it contains cyclopentasiloxane. If you notice that cyclopentasiloxane ends in dash, siloxane, the supposed endocrine disruptor, then congratulations. You've done more research than food, babe. What do leukemias, hummus, and facial cleansing milk have in common? In the world of Manny Harry, quite a lot apparently. Every night before going to bed, she washes her face in Avalon Organics facial cleansing milk. Three months after she divulged this beauty secret, Harry solemnly warned her readers that packaged hummus was dangerous because it could contain potassium sorbate, known to cause skin allergies with prolonged use, and sodium benzoate, which combined with vitamin C can produce benzene that has been known to cause leukemia and other cancers. You've probably guessed by now what can be found in Food Babe's facial cleansing milk potassium sorbate, sodium benzoate, and lemon peel, a rich source of vitamin C. If these ingredients cause skin allergies and leukemia, as Harry claims, why is she promoting them via her website? Now, these are just a few examples of products recommended by Food Babe that contain exactly the same ingredients she claims are dangerous. Catching her in the act is as simple as picking an additive from her ban list and reading the label on an item she recommends. It's important to stress that experts in science and in medicine have time and again debunked Harry's claims that the ingredients discussed in this piece are as dangerous as she claims. No one should walk away in fear of buying any of these products discussed. The takeaway message is that Harry's science is as questionable as her investigative techniques. When given a taste of her own medicine, using a simple web browser to look up the ingredients of items she recommends, Food Babe's role as a safety advocate is cast in a new light. The fact that she openly earns sales commissions on products pushed via her website should give us all pause for thought. Now this is Marilyn, and this has been the good news. Well, everyone, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks go out to the following people. Inga Pevchin, Isabel Boyd, Emily Randall, Michelle Robluski, Jared Cyril, Alton Doe, and Neil LaGuardia for signing my online petition to demand that African Airways stop shipping slaughtered wildlife trophies. And thanks also to my friend Belinda for making me aware of the petition. See the show notes for more on that. 
Be sure and tune in next week when our special guest interview will be skeptical ghost hunters and paranormal investigation team, Brian and Baxter. You won't want to miss that. And lastly, a special get well to one of my best friends, Mario. He's not feeling well and I wish him a speedy recovery. So as always, until next time, you've been shell-shocked.